One of the things that is often done around this time of year are New Year's resolutions. Okay, I will not take a quick poll, but this is something that many of us even have done. How many of you have made a New Year's resolution and have already broken it? This guy has, okay? And I tried to make it easy. This year I resolved not to make any resolutions, just made one. You know, what's the thing about New Year's resolutions? You're, you're trying to do something to improve yourself, trying to do something to make yourself better. Maybe you resolve to eat more eggs. Eggs are in cake, all right? There you go. Maybe you resolve to drink more water. You can't have coffee without water, all right? I'm helping you. Maybe you resolve to do other things, you know, you, you have the resolution, I'm going to make sure that I read the Bible every day this upcoming year. I'm going to resolve to make sure that I pray for my pastor every day this year, or to pray for something every day this year. And when it comes to resolutions, oftentimes we find ourselves failing at those resolutions and if we think to it, a resolution, especially a New Year's resolution, is something that I am going to do. And if it is I who is the one who is supposed to be supplying the strength for this resolution, I is not good enough. I, I don't even have good enough grammar to say that correctly. Sorry to all of my English teachers. But I can't do it on my own. And as Christians, that's not necessarily a bad thing because we have that source of strength. In Titus chapter 2, Paul writes to young Titus and he gives him four concepts to consider as he is striving to live his life correctly. Titus was an individual who Paul had not only converted, led to the Lord, but also he had mentored him and trained him in Christ. Not much really is known about Titus or his ministry, although that we do know that according to this letter, Paul was, or Titus was at a church in Crete. And there is also some questioning of his authority. In verse 15 of chapter 2, Paul writes, instructs him, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no man despise thee. The epistle to Titus is very similar to the epistle that Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy. Both letters contain qualifications for the pastors. Both letters contain warnings against similar corruptions. In both, Paul instructs Timothy and Titus to be a pattern of what a Christian should be, to be a pattern of a believer, and he instructs both of them to not be despised. And in our passage this morning, verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2, Paul gives us these four concepts to consider as we seek to live our best life for Christ in this coming year. We'll just not count the first week. We'll 
call that first week a mulligan. If you don't understand that term, talk to Dale. First week of the 2024 doesn't count. So moving forward from today. Paul writes, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. And the first concept that we see in this passage, and if you're taking notes, I'll try to make it easier. It's all going to be the letter T to start the word. Okay, four points that all start with the letter T. The first is the truth. The truth is very simply this. God's grace has appeared to all men. The grace of God. Getting what we don't deserve. This wonderful free gift. In Romans 6.23, Paul tells us that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This grace that brings salvation. And we think about it, when did God give us this gift? In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, If when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God, the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, it hath abounded unto many. This gift was given to us when we didn't deserve it. Yesterday we celebrated my son's ninth birthday. And with birthdays, you usually get gifts. And what gift do you deserve? You know, he can make a list of things. I wish that I could get this. I would like to receive this gift. But when you give a gift to somebody, what do they, have they done to deserve it? If it's a gift, they've done nothing. The grace of God, this wonderful gift that brings salvation. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2 that it is by grace we are saved through faith. It is not of ourselves, but rather it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We have done nothing in and of ourselves to earn our salvation, to merit God's favor, to receive this gift. In fact, the only thing that we have done to participate in this gift is we've committed the sins that Christ had to die on the cross for. And this wonderful free gift that brings salvation, Paul tells us, has appeared unto all men. Not just the rich, not just the poor, not just the Jew, not just the Gentile, not just to the good, not just to the wicked, but this grace has appeared to all. John tells us in John 3 that God so loved only a select group of individuals that he gave his love and favor to, that they can get saved. No, we, we, this is probably one of the most familiar memorized verses, for God so loved the 
world. This gift is made available to all men. The gospel call is to go out to all people. Jesus, in his last words to the disciples in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Make disciples, is what that phrase means. How do you make disciples? By baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay, what is baptism? Baptism is an outward demonstration of that inward salvation. So how do you make disciples? It starts by the giving of the gospel. It starts by introducing people to that wonderful free gift. That free gift that costs you nothing. The free gift that costs you nothing to give to someone else. To make that offer, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Not just giving them the gospel, but then also the discipling afterwards. And this command that Christ gave to the disciples is a command that is given to us even 2,000 years later. God's grace has appeared to all. That's the wonderful truth. So the first question we need to ask is, first and foremost, have you accepted this wonderful free gift? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to accept the free gift of salvation for you? If you have not, may today be that day. After the service, come and see me. See one of the other people here. We would love to show you how you can get that free gift of salvation. But the second aspect about the truth is that this wonderful free gift has appeared to all men. As believers, here's kind of where the rubber hits the road a little bit more. Are we giving this free gift to all men? Or are we waiting for a stranger to walk through the doors of the church to hear the words of God from the pulpit, and that's how they're going to get saved? That's how they'll hear while that may happen, it is rare. The better way for the whole world to hear the good news of the gospel is for those of us who have received the free gift to give that gift to others. Salvation is really the only gift that you're allowed to re-gift, and it's okay. Fruitcake, only a two-year limit on that one. But salvation, once we have it, we should be giving that gift. The most wonderful gift that we could have received how Christ died for me, how Christ took my sins away. And we should be willing to share that with those around us, giving it so that that grace appears and can be passed on unto all men. But this truth is simple, but the truth isn't just a truth for the truth's sake. The truth also has an impact on our lives as believers as well. And the second concept that Paul is getting across here in verse 12 is not only is the truth there that the gospel, the grace of God is given to all, but it also teaches us. It is not simply enough to have the truth or to recognize the truth, but we must allow the truth to teach us. Because the grace of God that brings salvation is not just a salvific grace. It doesn't just save us. 
but it's a transformative grace. God's grace, the good news of salvation, is wonderful, but God's grace also continues as we're saved to teach us how we are to live. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes that he is confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, what Christ did at our salvation, will perform it. He will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. The good work that is begun is the saving grace. The performing of it is the transformation. Because it is God, Philippians 2, verse 13, which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God's grace is what enables us to do what he wants us to do, as well as to complete his pleasure. What does this grace teach us? It teaches us, first of all, to deny. Saying no. Denial is an active decision. It doesn't happen accidentally. I don't accidentally forget to invite my Packer friends over to watch the game with me this afternoon. I intentionally allow them to languish at home. Now I'm dreaming. But denying this is an active decision, we are to deny several things. And the first thing that Paul tells us that God's grace teaches us to deny is ungodliness. A lack of reverence for God. As I said, the letters that Paul writes to Timothy are very similar to what he has written to Titus. In Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to Timothy, Refuse profane or refuse empty and old wives' fables. Stay away from those things that may sound good but have no purpose. But instead, exercise thyself rather unto godliness. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy again to shun profane and vain babblings because they will increase unto more ungodliness. So we are to avoid those things. Paul writes to Titus in chapter 1 to not give heed to the Jewish fables, to the commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. Even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work they are reprobate. The Spirit that not only saves us, teaches us to deny, to say no to this attitude of a lack of reverence for God. We live in a world that is not just we're we're against God and God can do his own thing. We're going to do our own thing over here and God can stay over there and we're going to be over here. We live in a world, we live in a society that is actively against what God has said. That actively is trying to get us to deny what God has taught in his word. And Paul tells us that those who live ungodly lives, we are not to make excuses for them, not to ignore them, but rather they are to be called out. They are to be, that should, attitude should be denied. We are to deny ungodliness, but secondly, we are to deny worldly lusts. 
the desires of the flesh that are satisfied outside of the will of God. In 1 John, John tells us to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, because if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, but all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but rather it is of the world. When we look at the culture around us, we see individuals who are going every day trying to get that next step up on the rung for themselves. They're wanting the lust of the flesh. They're wanting their own desires to be met. They're wanting people to recognize who they are. They're wanting people to recognize their accomplishments. But John tells us in this letter, 1 John, that all of those mindsets, all of those thoughts are not of God. And all of those thoughts that are of the world, the world passeth away. And the lust, the desires of the world, but in contrast to the passing world, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The grace that saves us teaches us to deny ungodliness. It teaches us to deny the worldly lusts. In James chapter 4, verse 4, James uses extremely strong language in addressing the believers here. He writes, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And when we think about the fact that as the church, we are the bride of Christ. And James makes the parallel very clear. The Christian who is to be the bride of Christ but who is seeking after the things of the world, who is seeking to get ahead, who is seeking to make a name for himself or herself, that would be like a bride on her wedding night seeking the affections of another man. James says, ye adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that having that friendship, having those desires of the world makes you God's enemy? And the same grace that saves us is the same grace that teaches us, instructs us how to say no to those worldly lusts. But it also teaches us how we should live. Not just what we shouldn't do, but what should we do. Not just, okay, I'm going to do right this one time, but I'm going to characterize my life this way. We are then, in contrast to living ungodly, living in worldly lust, we are to live soberly, exercising proper restraint on our passions. Now, there are desires that God has given to us because we are human. Sleep. If our bodies do not get sleep, bad things will happen to us. God gives us that desire for sleep, and that desire for sleep is a good thing. If, however, you allow that desire to sleep, which you need, and allow that to control you, that sleep, that desire for sleep becomes laziness or sloth. God gives us a desire to eat. If our bodies did not eat, we would not be here. 
But if we allow ourselves to be controlled by that desire to eat, that hunger turns to gluttony. And there are these desires that God has put inside of us that are good desires as long as they are held within the scriptural bounds. And as we are saved, that grace that saves us teaches us how then to live soberly, to control those desires so that we are not fulfilling them. Peter warns us that we are to be sober. We are to be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Why should we have this restraint on our passions? Because we have an enemy who desires to destroy us. The Romans had a military that conquered much of the known world. But there were some really weird people living in the hills of Germany, some barbarians that were just fierce fighters, and the Romans really couldn't seem to figure out how to deal with them. And the Romans came up with a scheme. They sent to these barbarian hordes cask after cask of the finest wine. And these Germanic chieftains indulged upon this wine in the next day when they were all out of their own sobriety, unable to control their bodies, the Romans set upon them and were able to use that desire to destroy their enemy. And we have an enemy in Satan who is seeking to keep us off guard. We are to live soberly. The Spirit that saves us also teaches us to live righteously, exercising justice to all people. Treating everyone fairly. It teaches us that we are to live godly, having a proper respect towards God. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, he beseeches us by the mercies of God that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. And how do we do this? We do it by not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And what does that transforming work? It's that same grace that saves us, that teaches us, that transforms us. It teaches us how to live in this present world. As long as you are on this earth, God has a plan and a purpose for you. Whether you are the oldest person in this room or the youngest person in the nursery, God has a plan and a purpose for you to be here. We are, and the Spirit teaches us how we ought to live. As Christians, we should never be satisfied with where we are at spiritually, but rather we are to continually strive for Christ-likeness. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Brethren, I count my, not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, the individual who, before he was saved, did much to destroy the church, who wrecked havoc of the church. Paul, who described himself as being the chiefest of sinners. 
Paul says, those things that are bad, I put those behind. I forget those things which are behind me. But Paul is also putting those things that sometimes we can hold on to as our laurels of life. Paul says, the fact that I have reached most of the known world with the gospel, that's not enough. I want to continue moving east. I want to get to Spain. Paul says the individuals that I have led to the Lord, the individuals that I have trained, that I have discipled, that's not enough. All of the good that I have done, it's not enough. I am forgetting those things which are behind, but I am continuing to press forward, to strive to reach that end mark that Christ has for me. And as long as we're living on this earth, we should be allowing the Spirit to teach us how we are to live, to be more and more like Christ. The grace of God that brings salvation, that's the truth. That grace is here. It teaches us how we ought to live. But the third concept is the trust. It teaches us how we are to live in anticipation for something, something that we are trusting God to do. Paul says that we are looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing. Looking for an eager anticipation. You know, Christmas morning, waiting until 4 a.m. to wake up your parents to go downstairs to see if there are any gifts under the tree. And you go down and you try to figure out what's in the gift. You know, you shake the box. You, you feel it to see the squish factor. Oh, socks again. Or if it rattles, okay, either somebody broke the dishes or I got Lego, one of the two. Hopefully it's the Lego. But you're actively anticipating what those are. This is the same word that was used to describe Simeon and Anna in the temple when they anticipated the coming of the Messiah. We are to be eagerly looking forward to that blessed hope. Hoping is not our use of hope. I hope the Bears win this afternoon for no other reason than to spoil the Packers' playoff chance. I hope the Cubs win the... Never mind, that happened once in my lifetime. I can't get too greedy. You know, we think hope is something that maybe there's a chance. But instead, this blessed hope is referring to the promise from God of something that will be accomplished. Paul started this letter to Titus in chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope, that promise that God has made of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began but in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. The hope of eternal life, that blessed hope of Jesus Christ's return, is founded in the promise of the one who cannot lie. The blessed hope and the glorious appearing. What an appearing that will be. As I get older, as I start to sound more and more like the box of Rice Krispies getting out of bed in the morning, snap, crackle, and pop, 
I look more and more forward to that glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, where I don't have to worry about that pain, where I don't have to worry about, did I forget to do something? Paul says we are being taught by the grace how to live our lives until Christ comes back. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Looking for, waiting for that day when Jesus comes back to take his church. I don't know what it'll be like. I don't know if those who aren't saved are going to catch any part of it. But man, I cannot wait to be walking down the road and all of a sudden I hear that trumpet. And I hear that voice of the archangel and I start getting off this ground and I meet my Savior in the air. That trust that it is coming, the glorious appearing of our great God. This is a clear reference to the deity of Christ. He is not just a little G God, but he is the great God. He is the incomparable God, the God of gods, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is coming back. And he is our Savior. The one who has redeemed us to himself by his sacrifice. The one who died for us will come again. And when he does, how will he find us? As the songwriter wrote, When Jesus comes to reward his servants, whether it be noon or night, faithful to him will he find us watching with our lamps all trimmed and bright. If at the dawn of the early morning he shall call us one by one, when to the Lord we restore our talents, will he answer thee, well done. Have we been true to the trust he left us? Do we seek to do our best? If in our hearts there is naught condemns us, we shall have a glorious rest. Blessed are those whom the Lord finds watching. In his glory they shall share. If he shall come at the dawn or midnight, will he find us watching there? And that wonderful truth that God's grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men, that grace that teaches us that we are to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, that we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world until that day where Christ returns for us. And the fourth concept that Paul hits in this passage is the trade. This Jesus who is coming again, our Savior Jesus Christ, Paul reminds us of the trade that he made on our behalf. Who gave himself for us. This is the highest form of love. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 13, that greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And yet it was when we were yet without strength. 
in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. The greatest form of love is that a man laid down his life for his friend, and yet we see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave up his life for his enemies. And when we think about that, I had nothing good inherent in me that deserved, that I deserved Christ to die in my stead. And yet he chose to show his love to me by dying for me when I was his enemy. That he might redeem us all from iniquity, that he might ransom us. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. Jesus Christ did not come on the, to this earth to be served, but rather to minister, to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To ransom us not just from the penalty and the guilt of sin, but to ransom us from every sinful deed and thought. And how does this happen? It happens by the teaching of the grace of God, teaching us to deny the ungodliness and worldly lusts, to live soberly, righteously, and godly. It takes discipline. I am not going to, I promise you this, I am not going to wake up tomorrow and run a marathon. Ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen on Tuesday either. If I decide I want to run a marathon, when do I need to start training? A year before the marathon? Two years? And that's when it, what it's like when it comes to our Christian life as well. We don't get perfected right away. We don't get saved and all of a sudden, poof, all of our sinful desires are gone. But we need to be taught on that daily basis by the grace of God to live rightly. Jesus gave himself to redeem us, but he also gave himself to purify a peculiar people for himself. That purification is necessary because of the filth of our sin. The story is told of a farmer who is looking to expand on his pig farm, and he has a real estate agent come out to look at the adjoining property. And so as they're going out to look at the land, they go through the barn, and just on the other side of the barn is the pig pen. And I'll let you use your imaginations to flesh out that pig pen. You have the pigs, and they're just wallowing in it. And the farmer, well, he's got his dirty overalls, his boots, and he just kind of trudges through to get to the area of land that he's looking to buy. And you have that real estate agent who, for some reason, decided that he was going to wear his best outfit to that farm. And as he tries to cross through that pig pen, he's making sure that none of that stuff is getting on his clothes. None of that filth gets onto his shoes or onto his pants. The pigs, it's their filth. They love it. The farmer, well, he's just used to it. He's lived in it. He's used to it. 
But with that story, we need to make sure that as Christians, we're more like that real estate agent. Before we were saved, we were just like those pigs. We loved our filth. But because of the grace of God that saves us, the grace of God that is transforming us, we should be striving to keep ourselves as far apart from that filth as possible, to purify unto himself a peculiar people, a special people, a purchased people for his own possession. As believers, we should be different from the world because we belong to Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us, to purify himself, a peculiar people and a people that are zealous of good works. A people who have an extreme enthusiasm toward good works. I've referenced it a couple of times in the sermon already, but if you haven't figured it out yet, I am a Bears fan. I'm not like the Bears fans who only think of like the 85 Bears. I'm not that old. But you can have fans of sports teams, and then you can have fans of sports teams. The guys who paint their faces, the guys who shave letters into their heads. I mean, you can have those fans and you look at them and you're like, man, those people are weird. How can I be friends with them? That way I'm not the weird friend anymore. But Paul says that Jesus redeemed us so that we could be that type of a zealous person, a person who is zealous for good works. And as we go throughout our life, if we are zealous for doing what is right, the world that is around us, the world that loves its filth and its sin, they're going to look at us and they're going to say, man, that guy is weird. Why does he always want to do what's right? Why does she always want to do what's right? What is wrong with that person? But too often in our Christian lives, I think that we come to the point where we don't want to necessarily stand out. We're grateful for that grace that saved us. We're thankful that we'll spend eternity with Christ in heaven, that we avoid the punishment of hell. But we're just going to kind of get in that back seat and not try to make any waves as we go through this life. But that's not why Jesus redeemed us. He redeemed a people that are to be zealous This is a word that Paul has used elsewhere in the scriptures to describe his efforts as a Pharisee to exterminate Christianity. When Paul is on the road to Damascus, he's going to Damascus because he wants to wipe Christianity out. He is zealous for Judaism. This word comes from the zealots. The zealots were an aggressive political party whose concern for the national and religious life of Jewish people led them to even despise Jews who sought peace and reconciliation with the Roman authorities. Extremists among the zealots turned to terrorism. The zealots played a leading role at Masada in 73 AD when they committed suicide rather than surrender their fortress. These were individuals who it wasn't good enough that they were doing what they could do. If you were Jewish and you sought to make peace with Rome, you were their enemy as well. And as Christians, we should have this mindset that we are to be living for Christ, 
And those who call themselves Christians, if we see them and they are making peace with this world, if they are being friends with this world, we should be encouraging them as well to be zealous unto good works because we are his workmanship, which Christ Jesus created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. As we've looked at this passage this morning, and we think of the wonder of God's grace that has appeared to all. Again, if you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have not accepted that free gift of grace, may today be that day. But those of us who are saved, are we helping the spread of that grace? Or are we hindering it? This grace that saves us also teaches us how to walk. Are we denying the pleasures of sin which the world has to offer? Or do we make excuses for that sin? Are we living the way that God has commanded us to? Are we living in the light of Christ's imminent return? Because our hope is well-founded in him. He cannot lie. Are we living for the one who gave himself for us? Not out of responsibility, but out of joy. Jesus, you gave your all for me, so I'm going to live with my all for you. As we said, let's start this new year right. This first week will be a do-over. But as we go throughout 2024 as believers, let's strive to live our lives through the grace that has appeared for salvation, but also the grace that is teaching us how we ought to live. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die in our stead. We thank you that that wonderful grace has appeared unto all. And God, I do pray that if there is one who is either here in this room or listening to the sound of uh, the voice over the internet, Lord, that if they do not know you as Savior, that they would make that relationship with you firm, that they would come to know your Son as their Savior. Lord, for those of us who are saved, may we be living our lives so that that grace is being given to all. May we be telling those around us. Lord, may we be living the appropriate way that your grace teaches us to, to be denying the worldliness, to be denying the ungodliness, but rather to be living in light of your son's imminent return. Lord, we thank you that he loved us so much that he gave himself for us even when we were his enemies to redeem a peculiar people that is zealous of his good works. May we live in that light, we ask in his name. Amen.